Father, your mercies are new every morning. Every time we are conscious of our first breath and our eyes open, you pour out your blessing upon us because you love us, your children. You are faithful when we are faithless, Lord God. You know our inner workings. You know the burdens that we carry, and they are many. Yet, your cry to us this morning is to come. Bring all your baggage, your filthy rags. Bring all of who you are and lay them at my feet. Christ, and you promise that you'll take them up. You promised that under the load which we could not bear, bear, Lord God, you would. You would take it all. You would nail it to that cross and declare that it is finished. That is the beautiful work of the gospel in our lives. So we worship you this morning. We praise you. We hope in you. We find our sustainment and strength in you. We give you this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. You may have a seat. Well, as I was thinking this morning, I've been really struggling this week. I don't know if you have. Um, I feel uh, within the room there's just a a lot of burden uh, that we carry. I know that I've felt it this week as I have been walking along and just in my own life, just finding that... uh, that connection to Christ, just really feeling alone and in the process. And that's hard, right, when you're preparing a sermon to preach on rest. And yet the Lord in his sweetness and his kindness uh, just rocked my world this morning. I went on a run. It was a really uh, dark morning, um, so just kind of solemn. Uh, I didn't want to listen to my normal jam-out music. I was just wanting to kind of be at peace. And I stood out there, and this week, like I said, it's just been really dry, and just like, Lord, just fill my cup. And uh, in that moment, uh, we've got a lot of chickens, which means a lot of roosters, and a rooster crowed. And my mind went immediately to Peter, and I was like, this is how Peter felt, rejecting Christ, convicted over his sin, and running away. But the promise to Peter was very sweet. Because Jesus called out to him and before all of this had happened, promised that he was going to come back. And he did. He followed Christ, he followed Christ completely and utterly. And I, as I was going on my run, I was listening to Maverick City and the, one of the songs is talking about though the storm falls, the foundation will not be shaken. Just thinking back to the Sermon on the Mount is Christ dealing with if we are grounded and rooted in him. Peter was not shaken, nor will I nor will you if you place your faith and hope and trust in him. So as we come together this morning, I'm excited because this is taking a look. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, not including Easter last week because it's just a great celebration of the gospel, but before then we've been talking about a nuanced portion of it, about what it is, the cost of discipleship to follow Christ. So the sermon series was Follow Me. And we were really discussing from that, all the teachings of Jesus of where he was saying, you know, uh, come to me, but understand the cost. Understand that it will, it will demand everything of you to come to me. And it is a sacrifice. So today I want, 
And the reason why we were doing that was just because we, we want to shake out our sentimentality. So many people that are coming to Jesus that are questioning, that are looking to him are, are really grasping after an easy believism, right? That sees Christ as savior, but fails to see him as Lord, fails to see him as who he is truly uh, robbing them of the true picture. And what do they do in that man-made scheme? What they, they build this false religion around them, this idol that is not Christ, and they bow down to worship it, but it provides no freedom. But if we take an honest look at the teachings of Jesus, we, it, something is revealed that is completely different. Even though salvation is free, it will cost us everything to follow after him. Yet even in that, we need to recognize that more than just a calling to come, right, it is to experience more and more of his freedom. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God's calling to us is to enjoy him, to be satisfied with him, to relish in him. But to round off our time, as we think about this morning, what I want us to do is to, just to reflect. We're going we're gonna to turn the gospel a little bit. It's good news. And we're going we're gonna to see that this beautiful picture of what Christ has done in our life, we're going we're gonna to turn it, we're going to look at it from a different angle and really sit in the foundation principles of what it is to walk in this freedom, that the salvation that we have is free, that it costs Christ everything. So let's hear from God's word again as we kind of set ground our faith. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what I want you to see is that from the main idea that Christ is, is laying out for us is that Jesus offers true rest to anyone who would come to him and lay down their burdens. Not keep it, but lay it down at his feet. And this is a beautiful picture for us. But we dare not miss that this, this passage, this point of teaching lands in a context that we need to not miss because Jesus is opening up the invitation to come to him to those that are repentant but be careful. He's very different to those uh, that are unrepentant. I mean, if you just walk back, just go back to verse 20, right? In, in chapter 11, it says, <clears throat> excuse me. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. They saw it. They relished in it, but they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted into heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until that day. That horrible city, Sodom and Gomorrah, right, would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says, come come to me, come to me. And what do we recognize from this? To find true rest, first, I want you to see that we must have a burden to lay down. The reason why Chorazon, the reason why Capernaum, right, these cities could not find rest 
was because they didn't believe that they had a burden of sin. They didn't believe that they were wrong. They felt that they were sure in their faith that they were completely on, but they were completely wrong. As was typical in the crowds while Jesus was teaching, right? He always taught us to go a little deeper. He was always calling out, like, come, come into deeper relationship to me. Don't stand far off, come in closer. And that's like he did at the Feast of Booths, John seven thirty seven. He says, on the day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. To the crowd of witnesses, he pleads with them to come to him and be filled. See, he's winsome and he desires for us to be with him. And how beautiful this is because the call for us today is as clear as the first day we heard it. Come to me, not wait, not stall, not fix things first, right? Not navel gaze, not self-reflect, not search yourself, be yourself, but come to me. And we must see how revolutionary this statement is actually from Jesus to come to him. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion, right? For the Jew, right, the veil still remains up and no amount of sacrifice that they can make will give them access to God. For Allah, the, the Muslim, no matter if he dies in his own bombing, right, trying to be close to Allah, still Allah is too holy for him to be in his presence. For the, all the Eastern religions, it's this endless cycle of trying to be better and doing good. Life, death, repeat, life, death, repeat, try and be better, try and be better, knowing full well that you and I cannot do it on our own, period. Christ steps down out of glory into our reality, showing that the supreme being of the universe desires relationship with us. He is the same holy God, and he knows that we cannot make it to him on our own because of our sin. So at Christ's coming, we see God revealing his heart for his creation. And as he called out to the crowds and as he's calling out to us today, there is an assumption. Guess what? That we do have a burden. That we are broken. Come to me and lay your burden down. This amazing love comes through in all of our salvation stories, right? Because we all recognized at some point that we were carrying this heavy load of sin, that we couldn't take it away. And we know this to be true, right? This is what Christ said. He came to seek and to save the lost. Those that knew that they were burdened, knew that they were broken. He didn't come to affirm our self-righteousness. He didn't come to prop up our own religious elitism. He didn't come to support our licentious living. He didn't come to build up our self-esteem. He came to save us from our sins, from our brokenness. Why? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 2 Peter 2.9. The free gift of salvation is for anyone who knows they are hopelessly lost and are desperate to be saved. And as we've been discussing over the past several weeks, Christ's different statements about following him, and as we count the cost, we dare not gloss over this beautiful reality that the salvation he's offering is, in fact, free. Not cheap, not worthless, but available and free. Its worth is infinitely valuable. Why? Because it costs Jesus his very life, his precious life for our behalf. But once again, he is calling is for those who know they're carrying a burden. And this burden is either laborious or it is heavy laden. Though Christ is speaking about our sin, guess what? His words hit all of us. For we fall, all fall into this camp who is labor, who is heavy laden. So let's look at these different burdens. Those who labor. 
First, remember the context of, the, of the Jesus' teachings. These were the Jewish people of the first century. So the Jewish people struggled under an enormous load of religious expectations, right? And legalities that, would, that were laid on them by the false religious leaders at the time. Jesus was saying, come, take on yourself the light burden of obedience, right? Under the covenant, I will seal with my own blood, right? And I will give you the covenant reward of deep down peaceful rest, freedom from guilt, the power of sin, self-striving. If you continue to carry the heavy burden of works-oriented, self-serving Phariseeism, you will never find rest, You were designed by God to carry my load, not man's. So in other words, these people may look good on the outside, but their burden is covered with layer upon layer of self-righteousness. These are the wannabe rule followers. They can answer Bible trivia. They can be great neighbors like Ned Flanders. They can look like stable parents. They can never break the law or even speed or break the speed limit, right? Guilty as charged. I know you are too. The word for labor is, at its root means to tire. But this is not ordinary tired because you had too much, right, schoolwork or you had a long day at your job. No, this is a tired that means that you have been beaten to the end of your life. Or this is a tired that is like the soldier right on the battlefield in the midst and all the mental and physical and emotional exhaustion that he's experiencing in the heat of battle. He's at the end of himself. That is the tired. Their labor is now crushing them under its tonnage and they can barely breathe. Why? Because the realities of their false labors are coming into view because they never could save them. Their religious life was coming up empty. They're like those that the prophet Isaiah described here as they all became like those who are unclean and all our righteous deeds like what polluted garments We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. They were found wanting. These are the ones that labor. What about the ones that are heavy laden? Here's the person who is overwhelmed by life. These burdens have broken them down where they are full of its suffering, right? Life, whether by their own means, their own licentious living or things that have been done to them, right? The burden of life is just too much. They're like Siphius, right, from Greek mythology, who was tasked and forced to roll a, a huge boulder continually uphill, only to roll it back down, only to roll it back up again for all eternity. They can't get out from underneath the crushing weight. The rescue must come from outside themselves because they cannot escape the burdens that plaguing them. To these, Christ is calling to them, come and receive rest, true rest, free from the burdens that they're carrying. And what do we do with this burden? We have to place it at the foot of the cross. We have to place it on Christ. Point two, verse 29. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. We have to place our burden on Christ, but first we need to see some things, right? First is the call, take my yoke upon you and learn. See, this is the part that is most difficult for us to realize because it seems like Christ is right offering some, us some type of bait and switch. Like, oh, you lay down your burden, oh, I'm gonna slap one on top of you. And that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying at all. See, for those, that, the hearers, they understood that right, to take a yoke in that day meant to become a disciple. When, right, so when we submit to Christ, we are yoked 
to him, right? The author of the universe, right? The words means well-fitting and it is just the yoke that is tailor-made for our lives and our needs. This is where we are, right? That's what it means to be yoked to him. So Christ sweetly tells his sheep to come to me and enjoy me for who I am. And this is the sweet calling of the gospel that we will finally be set free. But the only way to do this is to lay down the burden we are all carrying so that we can look up at our savior and stop looking at our burden. You have to lay it down. You can't keep carrying it. You have to put it down. And this should set our hearts to rejoicing. Think Paul, right, to the Philippians. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And he says later again, rejoice again. I will say again, rejoice. And we could just sit here and worship because we have this yoke that we have taken on from Christ. But unfortunately for some Christians today, we've grown cold to the beauty of Christ's calling and his rescue. We're too busy doing perhaps even religious activity to spend much needed time rejoicing in the Lord. Hear Paul again from, to the Ephesian church. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How can we grasp the love without resting in the Lord first? How can we rest in the Lord when we have turned, until we have turned from our sin, our burden, and when we have become Christ's child through faith in him? But some may still be asking, can this be true? And this is where Christ opens up a door for us that we need to walk through. And it's him showing us his heart on the matter. See, this is our motivation. He says, for I am gentle and lowly. Learn from me. Christ's calling does not come without him giving us a beautiful motivation to come to him. See, in this short statement, he speaks from his own heart, from what's going on. Dane Ortland, in the book titled Gentle and Lowly, says it this way, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we're not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he's gentle and lowly in heart. This is his very heart, the core of who he is, which should compel us to come to him and easily take up the yoke that he has for us. And gentle does not mean that he's a pushover. Right, this is power under control. This is so that he is approachable. Remember, the God of the universe is holy. Think, of, think back to the Old Testament. Think about Moses for a second, right? When Moses asked, can I see your face? God said, no, you can't see my face because as soon as you see it, you'll be annihilated. You can't stand in my presence. I'll show you my back. So Christ takes on flesh. He wraps his holiness in his flesh and comes so that he can be near you so that he can rescue you, redeem you, call you his own. Come to me. He wants to be near you. That is his heart for you. He's gentle. He's lowly. But perhaps our lacking of coming to Christ is more based off our misconceptions of whom he is. Right? For most of us, the reality is that we struggle because we like to fit God into our own little box of understanding. He looks like us. He acts like us. He does the things that we do. That would be bad for some of us, wouldn't it? 
And by our own misconceptions, we reject not Christ, but the shadow of Christ, right? Which is an idol that we've conjured up in our minds. However, to rightly see Christ, we must hear his own words, see his own responses and recognize his calling. And what is the result? How do we respond? The outcome, guess what, is rest. Rest for your souls right there. See, this is the culmination of the gospel and it's extremely important for us to realize to have true rest, we must know and understand who created it for his people. Otherwise, we will settle for this low-hanging fruit of comfort, not true biblical rest, right? If we're looking for comfort, then we have sought after the things of God, his blessings, his provision, and not the one who desires to give us the good gifts. Yet when we come to Christ by faith, he gives us this true rest, rest from a life seeking after those things that will not ultimately satisfy you, but entrap us. Think back to your own salvation story, relish in it. The moment you truly became free, you found a joyous calming of your soul, like the plucking of the strings of an instrument, right? And these chords continually play in your heart on into eternity as they can, the crescendo continues to grow. This is what our salvation story is. You're no longer striving against the wind, right? But the Lord has pushed the wind into your sails so that you can sail before him. The rest that I am speaking about is ultimate peace with God. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our ultimate rest with God is not about the absence of labor, work, and toil, but about the ceasing of hostilities to God, ceasing conflict, stopping the war. We were enemies, we were rebels, and Christ came to us and told us to lay down our arms and find peace in him. Listen to the writer of Hebrews as he talks about what this beautiful Sabbath rest looks like from Hebrews 4. He says, therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, speaking of the people of Israel, God again set a day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in a passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day of rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest has rested from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. See, the writer of Hebrews is drawing our attention to the fact that true rest is to be found only in Christ See how he referenced David and Joshua. Think about that. Joshua, for the entire Jewish ethnic Jew, was used by God to bring the people of God into the promised land and to eradicate all of of the hosts that were in the promised land. But they never truly fully conquered it. They They never fully conquered these surrounding nations. So guess what? The battles rage on. They continued to go. And the people of God floundered in their faith. David was God's chosen king and was used by the Lord to subdue all of these surrounding nations once again that Israel could, so that Israel could have peace. But it wasn't a peace that could last. Yet the people continued to rebel and their offerings were no longer satisfying to the Lord and they were given over to their enemies. Jew, the Jews never entered God's desired rest because it was ultimately to be found in their one true Messiah, Christ, not their works. No other leader or king could bring about that final rest for their soul. Yet there is more 
to this biblical rest than only peace with God through salvation. There is a vibrant life of activity and movement. It is living and active. And that's what we see in our last part. We take on the burden that Christ desires for his children to carry. This is what he's desiring for us to carry along. As Christ's followers, we are all going to take on the yoke that he gives us. That was his beautiful promise right there earlier in chapter 11, right? And no one knows the Father except the Son and the, anyone to whom the Son, is, Son chooses to reveal him. This yoke is a calling to walk deeply into that which Christ has for us. Think about the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. It says to, about the Lord, stand by the road and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find what? Rest for your souls. But what did they do? They did not walk in it. Just like many of us do not walk in it, even though it's right there in front of us. Walk in the ways that the Lord has instructed us. Paul links our very work, right? To that, that, that which is a part of our salvation, right? He says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, right? That freeness, not as a result of work so that no one may boast because we couldn't earn it. We couldn't pay for it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, meaning you will walk in them, that goodness. See, this is the connection with our study over the past several weeks to the cost of following Jesus. Our salvation is free, but following him will cost us everything. Yet Christ tells us that his yoke is easy and the burden that he lays down on us is light. So what is this yoke again? Again, we know from the agrarian culture of the time, right? A yoke, this is that cross beam that two animals were connected to. Why? So that they could lighten their load. So Jesus is asking believers to take this yoke, which does not relieve us from working, but who does it hitch us to? Christ himself, the burden bearer, the one that can. So the one, the author of the universe that can carry it all is the one that we are hitched to. That is the yoke that we are to carry. This is beautiful. We are given a remarkable helper to accomplish this work. See, he's not asking us to accomplish anything that he is unwilling to equip us to handle. And within this sphere of obedience, we will find that this burden is fulfilling and rewarding, not toilsome and exhausting. We need to see that Jesus' yoke is suitable and his burden is easy to bear. Jesus instructs his followers to take my yoke. And now what does that mean? To take it, what, at their own initiative? He's asking for you. He's like, take it, take it from me, right? He's not gonna put it on you without consent, but to refuse Jesus' yoke, get this, here's the warning, is not to be burden-free, but to remain, retain a much heavier burden. Everyone in life must carry a burden. We all do. We're all going to carry one. The question is whether we will carry the one that is within our capacity or one heavier than we were designed for. That is what sin is. It is that heavy burden that you were never meant to carry. It is that heavy burden that you were never meant to bear. Lay it on Christ and take up what he has prepared for you. So what are some of the characteristics of Christ's yoke, his work that he would have for us? Here are a few that you can write down and jot down in your notes. One, self-sacrificial love. 
Think about that. We see that in Philippians 3 as we look to the heart of Christ. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more insignificant than yourself. Why do we do this? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's our example, self-sacrificial love for others. Sacrificial service is another one. At the washing of the disciples' feet, he says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. We're to work for one another. We're to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6. Why? This is important for the Christian. We're looking like our, this is the yoke that we are to bear. None of us were meant to bear our burdens alone. So we come together and we work hard to sacrifice and service for one another. We see a need, we feel a need, we work. We work for one another. This is the heart of Christ. We put off the old life and put on holiness. All right, Ephesians 4.20 says, but that is not the way you heard of Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, it's, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be what? Renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are to suffer for Christ. We see this in First Peter. He says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Think about the, the apostles, right? Right at the beginning of the church in Acts as they are beaten in the jail and then as they walk out, what do they walk out doing? Rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Lord. Mm. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as a, what? an example so that you might follow in his steps, obeying his commands. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commands, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word and in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And he was fully obedient to the father. And so are we. These are several ways that we can take up Christ's yoke for his children. See, these beautiful purposes show us how he intends for us to rest in him. Which takes us back to the beginning as we dealt with true Sabbath rest in the Lord. Followers of Christ are to walk in this life carefully, right? As we bear burdens that Christ has placed on us. And I think we should think like the psalmist who encourages us when he's talking to the Lord. He says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We walk circumspectly, we look and we process, we walk in wisdom in the Lord. So how can we apply this? I just have three points that you can write down or it's actually already in your worship guide. If true rest is found only in Christ, then think about this. Carry your burdens to him and not somewhere else. You see, our struggle is that we like to carry our burdens elsewhere. We're ashamed to go to the cross. 
So we see others, right? Maybe we have our accountability partners, right? Or we have our, our counselor that we like to go see or we like to go. And then these are all good, right, areas. But if you're doing that at the expense of where you need to carry your burdens, which is Christ, then you're circumventing everything that he has for you. You're placing all your hope in them. And guess what, counselor, right? You're no, you're no savior. You can't bear a burden that wasn't meant for you, right? Friend who's walking alongside somebody, you're not a little savior either, right? You're to bear a burden, but make sure that that person is first going to the foot of the cross and finding that relief, finding that place. Take your burdens to him first. Two, and this is probably the difficult for most of us, do not pick up your burdens again. It's like Paul Newman, stop it. Stop going back. Stop going back to the same thing over and over and over again. I got two big dogs. They're nasty. They like, and when they vomit, they go back, just like the scripture says, back to their own vomit, licking it all up. And that's our grossness in our sin, yet we do it all the time. If you've laid that burden down at Christ's feet, do not pick it back up. It's filthy. Right? You tell your little kids, right, go wash their hands, right? Lord's telling you, stop. Leave that mess behind. Come pursue me. Don't pick it back up again. Leave it where it is. Leave it to die. Number three, live in the freedom that only Christ can give. Most of us are, are finding our bondage in other things, right? Christ is giving you a place of true release. Yet sometimes we kind of cozy up to our burden and we like it. We want to carry it around. It's a comfort, right? because we're, we're yet to really relish in the freedom that Christ has for us. We're, we've yet to really just fall headlong into the love of Christ. We've yet to really sense his washing over and over and over us again and again and again. And he promises that he will do this. He promises that he's going to come to you. He promises that he'll give you rest for your souls. So walk in it walk in it. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, once again, we come here and we are broken. We are a broken people. Many I know as I look here, just across the, the faces, I know they brought burdens in and I know they're struggling. Help them in that moment to lay down the burden that they're carrying. And it's not that it still doesn't hurt. The burdens hurt, okay? They hurt us. We live in this life and you knew that. Be foolish to think that it didn't hurt you when you were nailed to the cross, when everything grew quiet and dark, yet you bore it for us because you loved us. Lord, help us to see that our suffering has uh, meaning and purpose, even though we don't necessarily always understand. We don't have your vantage point. We don't see and know all things. We are limited. Father, so we submit all of this stuff to you. That's why you tell us to carry our burdens to you because we don't know the other side of the hill. We don't know what awaits us in glory. We've yet to scratch the surface of what it is to be in relationship to you. 
Holy Father, wash over us again and again and again and renew us in you. Sweet Savior, we love you. Father, I pray for the person that came in here searching this morning and they know the burden. They've carried it all their life. Help them to release it today. Help them to recognize that at the other side of their burden, once they lay it down, is a Savior who is gentle and lowly and calling them to come. Lord, in your promises, you you promise that you'll take all of that sin, all of that filth, and wash them new. Help them to repent, to turn away from it so that they can walk through this life that you have prepared for us in freedom and true rest. Lord, we give this time to you. Now, as we change our our time, as we prepare our hearts to come to the communion table, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if you are carrying some of those burdens, right? Maybe we're dealing with just latent sin. It's just robbing you, robbing you of joy. Then my encouragement to you is just do business with the Lord right now. In the quietness of your own heart, confess your sin to the Lord. Trust him. He knows your sin. He knows your sin better than you do. He's just asking for you to confess it. Confess it and turn from it. And he's asking you to walk in the freedom that he would call you to.